text of the evening is going to be Romans chapter 12. And I understand that my assigned topic uh, hovers around verse 19. So we want to get right to it. Um, look at verse 19, and then we're going to expand back to the greater context of Romans 12 and the greater context of the book of Romans uh, to try to uh, see how this admonition is framed. He says, never take your own revenge. Never take your own revenge, beloved, uh, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when you look at this particular verse, uh, we're really forced back into the greater context of Romans chapter 12 to see if there are any clues in this context as to how we can live this kind of life. Because I want you to at least be reminded that uh, it is a normal human tendency to hit back when we are hit. It's a normal human tendency, people who just grow up in this world, there's a normal human tendency to say, if someone's hurt me, I want to retaliate. That, starts at, that maybe starts uh, in the crib, but it certainly starts out on the playground. It's manifested in so many ways. And even when we grow up and become sophisticated, we mask it under various sophistications. But that same, that same uh, uh, evil is present in many people, especially people who are not Christians. So what am I supposed to do when God tells me, don't take revenge myself, make place for the vengeance of God. God will balance the scales one day. Am I supposed to read that instruction and dig down deep into my own uh, soul and gut that out of my life and find the power to live this way? And that's just a t that, that statement is just the tip of an iceberg. It's just the tip of an iceberg on any commandment of God. Should I be able to look at an instruction of God and say, I'm going to do that if it kills me. I'm going to gut that out of my life. I'm going to act my way into a better way of feeling. Well, I think you will see and, and be reminded in this context as we go back into the greater context of Romans chapter 12 that God is not expecting us to dig down deep into our own heart and find the power to be this kind of person. The power to be this kind of person doesn't come from this earth. The power to have this kind of godly way of living is not something that the earth uh, would breed in us. So if you look back at Romans 12, beginning with verse 1 and 2, let's look at what can power this kind of life. What can power this kind of life? Notice in, in Romans 12, he says, But I urge you, brethren, get this, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Do you see the key catalyst for all of the other things God tells us in this beginning chapter of Romans, the application section of the book. You notice where he opens this text by saying, therefore, 
In other words, what I'm about to tell you and the life pattern I am calling upon you to live is based on what I've just finished saying in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And he sums that up with the word mercies. I therefore appeal to you based on the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, it's the, it's the way God's mercy impacts us. It's the way God's forgiveness impacts us that fuels our ability and our strength and our power, which is heavenly generated, in order to live a life that he instructs, and that is that all of a sudden I don't view my life selfishly anymore, but I, present my, I, I come presenting not an animal sacrifice, a whole burnt offering on the altar, a burnt offering, a literal animal, but I come presenting myself as the whole burnt offering to the Lord which he would have never accepted had I not been forgiven of sin by his mercy, washed clean and have the imputed righteousness of Jesus as a free gift from heaven, my, my life as a worship offering wouldn't be acceptable to God. But now that he's cleaned me, now that he's shown me his mercy, uh, I now take on a mind frame that's totally foreign to the world's thinking. I come and am willing to lay my body on the altar. Not an animal's body, but my body on the altar of burnt offerings. And in that symbolism, do you know that in that symbolism, in the Old Testament days when the tabernacle was erected and God's glory hovered above the Ark of the Covenant, that when an Israelite who had not trespassed against a neighbor who had not sinned against God. Had he done that, he would have offered a trespass or a sin offering in order to be right with God so God would accept his worship. And he could then bring voluntarily a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now, one of the things that caused foreigners and people who served other gods to believe the Israelites were atheists, and even that flowed over into the first century, is that you could see all their gods. Of course, the problem with that was you had to heave them over your shoulder and take them with you because they couldn't walk and they couldn't hear and they couldn't see. But the God of Israel, our God, is a God who is unseen. He is a spirit. And so God, hovering above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, when that Israelite brought an animal, which was really a substitute for, for him, <clears throat> he leaned heavily upon that animal with one hand as if this animal represents me. And once the hide was stripped off that animal, the whole carcass of the animal was laid upon the altar of burnt offerings. By the way, that fire on that altar burned day and night. It burned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, meaning their worship was round the clock. People could come anytime and offer a whole burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering. And as the fires of the altar licked up around the body of the carcass of the animal representing the worshiper standing there participating in this worship, the spokes that, that came from the animal's body begun to ascend up, upward and God is pictured as coming out of the Holy of Holies and hovering above the Ark of the Covenant and doing this. Breathing in the sweet savors. Now, this wasn't a picture of God enjoying the smell of cooking meat. This was a picture of God savoring the consecration and the worship of the worshiper. If there was a projection going on here tonight and I were to hold my hand up between the projection and the screen, what you would see on the screen is a shadow. 
The shadow represents the fact that there is a reality, but the shadow is not the reality. When the animal's carcass was being incensed and God breathed in the sweet savor of the worship of, the, of that person that brought the animal, that was but a shadow, a representation, a copy of what God is seeking for in me and you. He wants us to bring our whole life. And he breathes in the sweet savors of our worship, adoration, and praise. And so he says, based upon the mercies of God, live a life of worship. Live a life so you are picturing yourself laying your, your body, presenting your body to be incensed to God as a worship to him. Also, when you are a partaker of the mercy of God, you need to get out of the, out of the loop of, of letting the world dictate the way you act and react. We no longer, as Christians who are recipients of the mercy of God, we're no longer members of the kingdom of darkness. We're members of the kingdom of light. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're a member of a kingdom that cannot be destroyed or shaken. We are children of Almighty God to emulate our Father, Jesus. We want to emulate His life. Not just listen to His teachings, but emulate His life. And He says, it's, it's time at your conversion to stop allowing the world to dictate the way you react. Don't let the world, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. There's three things in that verse based upon God's mercies. We present our bodies as a sacrifice. We no longer let the world dictate the way we act and react. We no longer have that good old boy, you hit me, I hit you. Listen, we still live in the South. And the guys and girls who used to know me, when I become a Christian, they really don't know me anymore. Because I no longer act and react the way I used to. Because our minds have been transformed. Now there's where the power comes to live the kind of life he's going to call upon us to live in this chapter. Now I want to say some things because as we get back to that, uh, you don't take vengeance yourself, don't take revenge, leave place for the vengeance of God. We're going to get back to that passage which is the burden of tonight's sermon. But I want you to look at the three divisions that follow in Romans chapter 12. Because the idea of not taking vengeance is packed into one section, one of the three sections. And it's, it seems to be a major theme of that section. But I want you to see what the other two sections call upon us to do and the kind of life we're to live. He's going to call us on these three sections to lay down pride. He's going to, and that is in verses 3 through 8. He's going to call on us in these verses to lay down hypocrisy. And that is in verses 9 through 13, and then he's going to call us to rid ourselves of, of a retaliatory spirit. And that is in verses 14 to 20 where we find don't take revenge. Why is it that when I am a recipient of the mercy of God, because you see, more, more of the sermon is going to be dealing with the catalyst and the power to live this kind of life Instead of just saying, okay, God says don't, don't, don't be a person of revenge, so let's get out there and let's not be that way. I'm willing to do what God says, but it, has he given us some gasoline to power this engine? Has he given us a catalyst? Has he plugged us into the power? 
And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Why would there be a death of pride that would lead into things like this found in verse uh, 3? For through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. A death of pride. Not a denial of gifts God may have given you or given me. Not, a, not saying, oh, shoot, I, I'm, not, I'm not anything. I don't have anything. No, God gifted you. Everybody's got a gift uh, and our gifts. He wants you to bring those, to serve him. But he doesn't want you to use it so you can stand in a spotlight and be filled with pride. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Well, then how should I think, God? You should think as a member of a community. You're just one part of a body. You're in a community of saints who have been multi-gifted in all kinds of ways. Just so happen you have a gift that falls in this category. See yourself as a member of the body of Christ, joined to the head Jesus. Why? But here's the thing. Okay, I, I see that. I get that. But how can I see a death of pride in my life? Well, I want you to point you back because we're talking about, you say, well, why are you going back to the Beatitudes? Because we're talking about the power that fuels this kind of life stems from our conversion. It stems from God's mercy impacting me and changing me. May I say this before I forget it? God's mercy was not just given to save us. God's mercy was given to change us. God's mercy was not given just to save us. God's mercy was given to tutor us. We know the grace of God saves us. But I want to see, you know what Paul said to Titus? I think it was Titus. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace is not just a savior, it's a tutor. And so what about grace? What about God's mercy? What about the transfer of the righteousness of Jesus to me? And when God looks at me, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. And folks, that's the only reason he can fellowship me. He can fellowship me because when he looks at me, he sees the imputed righteousness of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Because God is holy and he cannot fellowship sin at all. Not any nuance of sin. Not a shadow of sin. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And what I'm going to say is you can choose the best of us on our best day and we don't qualify. Jesus Christ and his righteousness was what God demands we be. We have to have a Jesus righteousness to get to heaven. But not just a Jesus righteousness to get to heaven. We have to have a Jesus righteousness to come into initial fellowship with God. And that happens the instant. As repentant, baptized believers, the blood of Christ totally cleanses our sins and the holy God does not compromise his nature of holiness and embraces us as his children. And that's how the, the, this, the tension of Romans 3.26 can be solved. That he's both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. You see the tension in that verse? How can God be just and do what's right and still justify sinners? Because he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Romans 3. He, he sees us in Christ, Galatians 3. But how can there be a death of pride? Go back to the Beatitudes, and I can justify that. I can justify that because... We're talking about people who are recipients of the mercy of God. Notice Jesus as he delivers the manifesto of the kingdom. 
He said, blessed are the pure, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now I want to put those four Beatitudes, at least I believe I understand some of the meanings of the terminology. Let me put, put it in these words. Blessed is the person who comes to understand that he is bankrupt spiritually. Blessed is the person that understands that he is in the dust poor and there is no way that he could earn himself into the favor of God. There are at least two Greek words for the word poor, maybe many more. One of the words means that I am able to go out every day, barely eke out enough money to go to the market, buy just enough grain to keep my family alive one more night. That's real poor. There's another Greek word for poor that says I'm in abject poverty. I'm unable to serve my own needs by the work of my own hands. Now, which one of the words do you think Jesus Christ used in this text? Did he say that I'm barely able to serve my own spiritual deeds by the work of my own hands? No, you know what he said? I am totally unable to serve my own spiritual needs by my, the work of my own hands. I am unqualified. And when a person understands that and that impacts him, he'll be like a prodigal son that wakes up in a pig pen and says these words, I am not worthy. You remember when a centurion in Capernaum, the Jews, he built for the Jews a synagogue and even the Jews were commending a Roman soldier and saying, this man is worthy. And as Jesus headed toward his house, you remember the centurion sent him word and, he, and what were the first words out of the centurion's mouth? What were the first phrase in his message? I am not worthy. Here's the point, he got it, he, gets, he got it. And when I, when I understand I'm not worthy and the holy high demand of God, it impacts me to the point that I mourn and grieve. That's not mourning over appendicitis attack or mourning over the fact that my, I have a debt unpaid. It's mourning over the fact that I'm, I'm lost. And when I get to the point in my life that I'm ready to meekly turn my life over to the management of God like a wild animal brought under control, I will hunger and thirst for the whole of righteousness that comes only as a free gift from heaven. If you read Romans 6 following about the sanctified life, you talk about spiritual growth. But when you're talking about this imputed righteousness from Romans 3, 21 to 5, 21, you're talking about a righteousness that becomes yours instantaneously as a repentant, baptized believer who puts his or her complete faith in Jesus Christ. So you see why pride must go? Pride is... Pride, pride has to die. It's the first step to God. Because if I come and say, you know, you remember the ocean, many of you don't remember this, but there was a guy named Fonzie at the first of the show. He would walk up to Jericho comb out of his pocket and then he'd put it back. You can't improve upon perfection, you know. If, if, we, if we have a fair cycle attitude, you remember the, the, the two people that went up to the temple to pray? One was a publican and the other a Pharisee. And the Pharisee prayed, Lord, I fast three times a week. I pray, uh, uh, I, I, I pray three times a day. I fast so many times a week. I give tithes of all I possess. I'm so thankful to you I'm not like this publican. By the way, is it good to pray? Absolutely. Is it good to fast? Absolutely. Is it good to give? Absolutely. 
But I want to tell you something, that guy went home lost. But the publican would so much as lift his eyes up to heaven, smote himself on the breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He got it. And he went down to his house justified because he had poverty of spirit. So you see the secret, and probably one of the more important things I'm going to say to you in my, at least my, my, my belief, is not for me to read a passage over here at the end of Romans 12 and say, okay, now let's all line up and let's, let's be this way. It's to show you where you get the power to do this. It's to show us that our reference point shall always be Calvary. Our reference point will always be a Savior who did what we cannot do or what we have not done. Our reference point is Jesus who earned our salvation by his, death, by his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his intercessory work at the right hand of God. So then, you know what hits us? And it, it, it comes, by the way, it comes, it comes just like dominoes. You get this right, and boy, you, you know when you push the first domino and they all begin to fall? You get this right, and they all, everything lines up. Oh, I see it now, and boy, am I embarrassed. Pride is ridiculous. Pride is ridiculous. Oh, if I wanted to compare myself to the professors at Faulkner, that wouldn't lead to pride. That would lead to humility <laughs> for me. For me. But we run around comparing ourselves to each other, but here's the thing. When I look at Jesus and I look at my sinful self, pride dies, especially when I've been a recipient of the mercy of God. You know the Bible describes God saving me as stooping down to make me great. So pride dies, and all of a sudden the admonitions in the section of 3 through 8 become something that it becomes doable and spontaneous, and we're excited about it, and we start seeing those things emerge in our lives because the root of our old problem is dead. Now, it can always rear its ugly head when we get away from Calvary. But I want you to just look briefly with me now to... Verse 9 through 13, the death of hypocrisy. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, and so forth. How can I stop play acting? You know what hypocrisy is? It's like a, a, a student actor standing on Faulkner Theater stage and, for, and, and carrying out a role which they, they're not that person. They don't, feel, they don't feel the way the actor's being portrayed. That's not them. How can I get out of this mess? Because I'm going to tell you something, it makes me sick. You say some other people make you sick? No, I make me sick. Anytime this mess starts showing up in my life, how can it, how can it be gone? And I want to I share this with you. When you understand, back to the Beatitudes, when you understand that you're bankrupt spiritually, you don't have the power to save yourself, you're deeply grieved and mourned, and you've made a mess out of your life, so you're meekly willing to turn your life over to the management of God, and everything you have, all the treasures in your spiritual bank come from heaven. I'm going to ask you something. What is there to be proud about? I'm going to ask you, what, they, what is there to be proud about? You know, Paul, he said, I boast. Oh, I boast in the cross 
of the Lord Jesus and Him crucified. That's what we, that's what we boast in. Do you know one of the four characteristics in Romans chapter 3 verses 25b to 31, one of the characteristics of somebody that's been impacted by grace, boasting is excluded. By what manner of law? Works? No, but by a law of faith. Understanding the impact of grace in our lives kills hypocrisy. And suddenly, the things he admonishes us to do that seem so out of character for a human being on this earth, oh, I can kind of get on a stage and act like this. No, it becomes real. It becomes genuine. God doesn't want us strutting the streets and praying in the street corners. He doesn't want us thumping, uh, uh, giving to the guy who had a trumpet under his toga so everybody would see what we were doing. He wants us to serve because we love him and we love our fellow man. Now to a few minutes on what I was assigned to speak on. Look at verse 14 to 20 when he says, going back to the text we're dealing with, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you know that that's a quote from Deuteronomy 32? I want to turn back over to Deuteronomy 32 just a minute and find out the context of where he quotes and says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, beginning with verse 34. Now, by the way, as we read, boy, this is a long chapter, and it all has pertinence to what we're talking about in the lesson right now. But I do want to mention to you, in the latter part of chapter 31, Moses finishes writing all the words in the, of the law in a book and instructs the Levites to put it behind the Ark of the Covenant and tells the people, you've been rebellious while I was living. My goodness, you're sure going to rebel when I die. And then he starts rehearsing all their evils in the first 33 verses. You know what he says? This is chapter 32 beginning in verse 1. In effect, he calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses to his words. And he proclaims the name of the Lord. He ascribes greatness to God who he calls the rock. He says God's work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now the reason he's emphasizing those things, which shall have all and shall always be true, the reason he's emphasizing those things is because God's about to tell them, here's the way, here's the ingratitude you've shown me. I brought you out of obscurity and sin and I brought you out into the wilderness and you sucked honey out of a rock. That's metaphoric. I took care of you. I hovered over you like an eagle hovers over the eagle with the baby eaglets in the nest and I cared for you. And what did you do? You traded me off for other gods. You traded me off for other gods. And you know what? If you're like me, I like to line up over on this side of the auditorium and say, Get up, God! Man, they were terrible. Do you understand? That's, that's us too. Somebody, oh, no. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many sins does it take to be disfellowshipped from the holy God of heaven when you reach an age of accountability? It only takes one, right? The, mo the moment you commit that first sin, you're as far away from... You can't be dead, deader, and deadest. The moment you commit your first sin, God puts it on your soul. You're separated from God. How can you be further separated? Oh, you can get some bad habits and things tough to break. But you're dead. I'm dead. God's talking about people that spurned his love and all of his overtures to express his love and sinned and traded him for other gods. And I say that's basically all of us. 
But you know when he gets down to saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice the reading here. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasures? Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time. Their foot will slip. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And then he will say to them, possibly the jaded people who left God or even the nations who never served God, he's going to say, where are their gods? I mean, those gods that you trusted, those gods you sacrificed, where are their gods? Where are they now? The rock in which they sought refuge. And he's going to talk about his people becoming refined, I believe, and he's going to talk about saving his people. Now, I, wanna, I want to conclude this sermon tonight this way. When we look at God taking people who had gone off into idolatry and having a time when, he, when they gave their life to him, rec- recovering them, receiving them back like a wandering wife, going to the slave block and buying Gomer back when she had prostituted herself, And there's something deep down, by the way, I just want to let you know something. Nobody else here may think the way I do, but something deep down in my gut says, that's not right. Gomer ought to have to have paid for what she did. Let me give you this illustration. It's brought up in Romans 4, by the way. A king who was a man after God's own heart, no question about it, walked out on a balcony one evening when it was time for kings to be off at war and he looked down below and he saw a woman taking a bath she, she was in fact he inquired, she was beautiful and he inquired as to who, who she was and one of his servants said well that's so and so's daughter well that's no problem but she's so and so's wife now that should have been a problem but David didn't let that be a problem he has Bathsheba in his chambers. I don't see her. She said, he's the king. She had to do what he said. I don't see her kicking and screaming coming in there, by the way. They have a sexual relationship. Who's going to be the wiser? She goes home, but she sends him word. I'm expecting a baby. Her husband's been gone too long to, expe- to explain that. I'm expecting a baby. So David decides to cover up his sin. You remember how he calls Uriah home from the battlefield? And by the way, I love Uriah. He calls Uriah home from the battlefield. And he says, how's the the battle going and so forth? Assuming that Uriah would go home. But Uriah was too noble for that because how can I go and be comforted by my wife when my fellow soldiers are on the battlefield and the Ark of the Covenant is on the battlefield? No, I couldn't do anything like David got him drunk the next night and thought it lowered his inhibitions. But no, he refused to go home. You remember how David solved that problem? Here's a man after God's own heart, people. He wrote Uriah's death notice and sealed it. And who's going to carry it? Oh, Rob, you want to carry this for me? Give it to Joab. The note read, put Uriah in the heat of the battle of Mar and let all his soldier friends withdraw from him in the heat of the battle. I want him dead. That's exactly what happened the next day. Well, you would think... Uh, 
you know, he thinks, okay, it's all covered. My bases are covered. When a prophet by the name of Nathan comes in one night or one day and says, David, I have a story to tell you. There was a man in your kingdom that had huge herds and flocks and another man only had one pet sheep, his neighbor. And you know what that wealthy man did? He went over and stole the only pet sheep of his neighbor and killed it and cooked it for a visiting friend. And David stood up and said, the man that did that is worthy of death. He'll pay fourfold for what he's done. Why did he say fourfold? Because the Old Testament Torah said you steal someone's sheep and you put four sheep in the place, right? He, he came out with the right judgment, but the point was he judged himself. Did David lose four sheep? Later on, there are going to be four sons, one by one, that lay dead. He paid four sheep. And you remember the words out of David's mouth? Oh, that my sin may be forgiven me. And Nathan says, your sin has been put away. You will not die. Now, it's right here where down deep in my gut, I say, that's not right. Now, we may not have murdered anybody, and we may, we may not have committed adultery with someone else's mate, but have we all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? So I want you to kind of file that back. But when, when Nathan said, your sin has been put away, you will not die, down deep in my gut, I say, that's not right. Somebody ought to have had to pay but you understand somebody did pay. You know who paid? He was wounded for our trespasses and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of Saul. And David wrote of his forgiveness in Psalm 32, and Paul quotes that passage in Romans 4. Blessed is those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David was a recipient of that mercy. And what I want us all to at least revisit in our minds is this. God expects his mercy not only to save us, he expects it to change us. You remember, that, you remember in the model prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. You remember the parable Jesus told of the man who owed a debt that he could have never repaid and the good king calls him in and says, you owe a debt, I want you to pay it. If you don't, you're going to be thrown into prison and the man begged for mercy. Give me time. And what did the master do? He didn't give him time, did he? He expunged it from the books. He forgave the man. Can you imagine how you might have felt? I won't let you know I could. I would be erudite. I would be walking on air. But did the mercy of the king change the man? You remember what the man did. He went out and found a fellow servant that owed him some pocket change, took him by the throat, demanded payment, and when the man couldn't pay and asked for time, instead of forgiving him or giving him time, he threw him into prison should he pay till he should pay the last cent. And when the good king who had forgiven such a great debt heard of that, he called the man back in and said, now you owe me everything that you owed me before, and you're going to prison and into outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth. God expects those who have been forgiven to be changed. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And be sure of this now. Can I share this one thing with you? I had one of those Kindles. And I looked on it one day, and it said, congratulations, you just bought another book. 
I said, but I didn't buy another book. But my six-year-old grandson bought one for me. I didn't even know what book it was. Fortunately, it was a good book. I read the book. It, it was dedicated to the idea, the question, is God a moral monster? How could God uh, tell Joshua to annihilate all the Canaanites? Well, I want to let you know something. If I went and tried to annihilate a bunch of people in the culture, that would be genocide. But when their creator and maker and the judge of all the earth executes righteousness and judgment, whoever he executes it on, you can be sure he is not committing genocide. He is committing, he is carrying out justice. And that's what Calvary was about. Calvary is about a God whose justice must be satisfied. And instead of pouring it out on us, he poured it out on his own son. Let that forever change us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. God bless you.